<laughs> Season one, let's do it. Hey, beautiful humans, you're listening to the Human Experience Podcast, hosted by me, Kiara Marie. I'm a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. I'm here to share my human experience, as well as have these raw and powerful conversations with leaders in the health and wellness space. The Human Experience Podcast began because I truly believe our souls are here to experience a wide range of emotions, make mistakes, own our past traumas that led us to make them, and face our deepest fears in order to grow. The Human Experience is a conversation about self-development, conscious awareness, normal human responses, and connecting mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. The Human Experience promises to deliver authenticity and diversity. The Human Experience community is a group of humans doing the work so they can live their lives to their fullest potential and are here to break intergenerational family patterns so that generations to come can too. At The Human Experience, we're diving deep. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Do you want to be in optimal health by having better digestion, glowing skin, better sleep, and more energy? That's where I come in. I help women heal so they can own their bodies by having better digestion, cycles, and moods. My customized programs are for you if you have thyroid issues, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, acne, or other chronic conditions, and if you're committed to making the food and lifestyle changes needed in order to reach your goals. If this sounds like you, shoot me an email to schedule your free discovery call at kiaramariewellness at gmail.com. Now back to the show. So welcome to the show, Dr. Casey. How are you today? I'm doing well, Kiara. How are you? I'm doing so well. Um, Despite being in quarantine, this is still... um, very exciting time, I'll say. I feel like a lot of people that I've spoken to have been um, just flowing in a a creative space, if you will. Um, So I think there are two sides to to this quarantine thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a really great outlook to have and, and nice to hear the positivity. Yeah, definitely. But I wanted to thank you again for being on the show. I'm so excited to chat all about Epstein-Barr and what the heck Epstein-Barr is. Um, I remember when I first started learning about it, I was like, this is a lot. It's a lot to break down. Um, There's so many questions that I have. So, But first, we're going to take a step back and just take a step into your journey and what led to you becoming um, a naturopathic doctor. Sure. Yeah. Well, when I was younger, I had some really severe gastrointestinal health problems. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, I would eat food and feel extremely nauseated. And I was really, I mean, I had food sensitivities to everything under the sun. And I was really malnourished. So um, I remember being, you know, a teenager and weighing like 80 pounds and not being able to put on weight. And I was an athlete. So I think that contributed a lot. Mm. And, um, I also have really bad insomnia and would just feel extremely nauseated after I ate. Uh, so we went to a lot of doctors, my mom, of course, and, um, it was causing me anxiety as well. Um, so lots of things were proposed from Pepto-Bismol to putting me on anxiety medications to doing some type of sample from my gastrointestinal tract tissue to see what was going on. Um, and then my mom took me to a naturopathic doctor in Bozeman, Montana, Dr. Mm. Mark Harris, and he was able to take care of my gastrointestinal health and heal it, which was probably disrupted from multiple things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't remember everything because I was like 10, mm-hmm. um, but he healed my gastrointestinal health and I was able to put on weight and have healthy hormones and it completely changed my life. And uh, the way that he used traditional naturopathy and botanical medicine, as well as targeted supplementation and looked at my energetics and, you know, assessed 
that through everything ranging from traditional labs to applied kinesiology and what we would call like ART testing, similar to what Dr. Klinghart does. Um, I just fell in love with the medicine and um, about the age of 15, I was determined that that was what I would be, that I would be pursuing. Wow. That is so young. And all of those symptoms that you were experiencing started around 10 years old. So some of them, when I was 10, I actually got Epstein-Barr virus. Mm. Um, so okay. I was just, it was, I was really fatigued. I did have anxiety and feel kind of nauseated. Um, but at that time it was like I had Epstein-Barr virus. Um, and that was kind of when it started with my health, trying to figure out what was going on. I didn't find him until I think I was 12 or 13. Um, so when I had Epstein-Barr virus, I was missed three months of school. It was a really, you know, the doctor just kept saying, this is a really extreme case. We don't know why it's taking you so long. Just rest. Um, and I overcame that, but then started my digestive health just kind of kept going and mm -hmm even though the EBV didn't show up positive anymore, um, it was clear that things weren't, weren't right with my overall health. So it took me a little while to find him. Um, and I was like 12 or 13 when I found him. Mm. Wow. And how do you think you contracted EBV? Well, I mean, I, I drink out of drinking fountains. Like, <laughs> um, I was, you know, in sports a lot. So we were always like sharing snacks or whatnot. So it's contracted through usually salivary fluid, which, you know, they, we don't really know quite how much you need. Um, so that's why it's commonly called the, the kissing disease. But I definitely did not have a boyfriend until I was like 18. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> I'm going to blame it on sharing water bottles and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's also possible that when I was in different gyms or at school, like I've thought back to, Hey, was there any like mold in the school or things like that. And I don't really have the answers to that. Um, but it does seem that my immune system was just really, really down around the time that I got it. And it really took me a long time to recover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can relate so heavily to you. I contracted EBV around the same age, I want to say, maybe even a little bit younger. Um, it was early 2000s. I can't remember how old I was, but I remember I was on vacation. Actually, I was in Aruba for 16 days and it was the most miserable vacation. Oh no, that's terrible. <laughs> ever. I mean, I was just a kid. And then of course, like there were other kids around. So all of us just got it. And, you know, I don't know how, I mean, we were sharing, like, like you said, sharing everything. They were like, family. We were pretty much cousins. Um, and then the rest of the trip, it happened early on too in the trip. The rest of the trip, I was just wiped out. I mean, EBV is, is no joke, especially when it's active. Um, so I guess we keep throwing that around. What is Epstein-Barr exactly? What, what kind of virus is this? Yeah. So Epstein-Barr virus is from the herpes family of viruses and it is known to cause mononucleosis. And when I was diagnosed, I like I remember them saying, you know, usually you'll get over it and then it won't be a problem. They did state that there is a very rare chance that it could reactivate. And fast forward to where we are now in the medical field, we see that that reactivation is happening a lot more frequently. Um, but it's commonly known as just mono, the kissing disease. Usually it's self-limiting, but it is from the herpes family virus. So it does stay in our bodies for life. Um, so if you think of HSV-1, um, HSV-2, those as well as um, shingles and the chicken pox, all those are kind of from the herpes family virus. Like you see with shingles and cold sores, we can, if our immune system gets down, they, they come back. So it's in that family of opportunistic viruses that are hanging out with us and stay in our bodies. Mm, okay. And how do we keep them at bay? I mean, how, how often can they reactivate? Is it kind of just dependent on, you know, what's going on in your life? Yeah. So in all reality, our immune system, I always tell people, you know, we have to remember how amazing our immune system is. So if these viruses are reactivated or active, 
so in in a perfect world, in a perfect immune system, they they wouldn't turn back on because we have B cells that remember the virus that they've seen and help keep that at bay. Um, so if our gastrointestinal health and our immune and our stress is all, you know, is all in check, then it shouldn't be a problem. Um, but one of the biggest things that we see happen is, especially with Epstein-Barr virus, is an episode of stress. Um, it can range from anywhere from an emotional event to a car accident. And there's actually quite a bit of research being done on what it is that causes Epstein-Barr virus to reactivate and there's kind of a lot of different things. And the thing that I have seen that they all have in common is they cause oxidative stress in the body, which um, is when reactive oxygen species are able to go around and your your body needs to get rid of those because those are the things that cause us to age. So anything that you think about from infection to stress to toxins, those can all cause oxidative stress. So it seems that Epstein-Barr virus does have a mechanism that when there's oxidative stress, it, it's like a signal that's like, hey, it's a good time to come out and cause problems now. And this person has, you know, other things going on in their health. So you're going to be able to run around from the immune system and it's not going to be able to catch you and it'll turn back on. So that is why it is very different for each person as to why it has reactivated and, and what needs to be done to put it back into a latent state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, just with, with all viruses in general, um, I know when I'm under a lot of stress, um, I can see some cold sores maybe coming out, and that's relating to the, the HSV-1 uh, virus that lies dormant in the body until it's reactivated. Um, so, I, yeah, same goes for the rest of the viruses that can lie dormant in the body as well. Um, what are some symptoms of Epstein-Barr for someone who... Because a lot of people may have mono without even knowing it. Is that correct? Yeah. So the first time that Epstein-Barr virus um, is present in the body and somebody has been exposed and we have what we are calling mono or mononucleosis, uh, it can be very mild. So it might be just mistaken for like an off week or feeling tired and not sure why or um, a mild flu or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if, if it is to the extent where somebody goes to the doctor, you know, a lot of times their symptoms are fatigue, headache, mild fever. Uh, sometimes there can be some form of rash that presents with it, but that's also less likely. Um, and then sore throat and swollen lymph nodes. That's kind of your initial picture of Epstein-Barr virus. So especially in kids at school and things like that, you know, parents might think it's just a cold or a flu or they're just run down that week and then they bounce back. Um, but in some people it is more severe. And when it reactivates, it can look like that, but usually it's more severe. Usually we see a lot stronger fatigue. Um, sometimes we see symptoms that are more chronic, like joint pain, um, brain fog, anxiety. A lot of times the people describe the anxiety that they feel with the virus when it's on is almost a buzzing um, because when that virus is on, it is activating pathways that are inflammatory and leading to cytokines in the body. And a lot of times I hear people describe that experience as kind of a buzzing sensation, which can turn into having insomnia or anxiety um, and a general feel of malaise, or they'll have cyclical symptoms where they may have a low-grade fever and feel achy, uh, sore throat. And then we can also see some more long-term things happen in regards to autoimmune conditions and things where we're seeing severe joint pain or, or things like that happen with it. Uh, so there definitely is a wide, a wide variety of symptoms that can that can be associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every single symptom that you just listed, I feel like so many people can relate to, including myself. Well, obviously, because I have had mono and didn't realize that I carried Epstein-Barr all along ever since that happened when I was a little girl. Um, and the symptoms that can be present, um, you had mentioned oxidative stress. Can that come from mold as well? Yes, mold is a huge source of oxidative stress. Yeah, um, 
And mold is, I feel like when we see black mold in our shower or something or any type of mold, we just tend to, you know, wash it off with maybe some bleach or something, but we never really get to the root of the problem. How can this be detrimental to our health, especially if we don't know that we have something like Epstein-Barr lying around in our body? Yeah, so the way that mold interacts with the body, um, and I mean, there are molds that um, are kind of more from like a mildew family where they will they will show up and, you know, they're not from the source of a water-damaged building, so to speak, but they're more outside or whatnot. And sometimes people will just have like an allergic response to them, sim- similar to um, seasonal allergies or whatnot, where the body's just like having an IgE response. Uh, but mold illness, if you're living in a shower or something where there's molds from families that cause health problems, which uh, OSHA, according to OSHA, there's about one in four buildings that has water damage that could contribute to health. So that's kind of a, a lot. Um, and that causes oxidative stress in the body. Mold also, depending on how much in the species, can cause B cells to forget that they saw that virus. So like with Epstein-Barr virus, you've got the oxidative stress, which is signaling, you know, hey, it's a good time for EBV to come out and play. And then you've also got, you know, the main, the main some of the main cells that Epstein-Barr virus affects are being affected by mold. Um, so you can't fight that. And then on top of that, mold is going to have to be processed. The mycotoxins have to be processed out through the liver. So we there's a lot of stress with the liver there. Um, depending on Epstein-Barr virus and what your health picture is like and what your other detox properties are like, there can also be stress on the liver from that. So then you kind of have this perfect storm um, where you are dealing with a reactivation of EBV and mold, and those symptoms mm-hmm. kind of get jumbled together. Mm-hmm. Um, but mold can be the cause of the cause of the Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, and I would say a lot of times it is contributing in cases where somebody says they've done, you know, they've done everything to try and get rid of Epstein-Barr virus, or they, they just don't know why they can't get it under control. A lot of times we're missing mold. Mm, yeah. And you had just mentioned mycotoxins. What, what, what are those? Yeah, so mycotoxins are created... Um, by the mold spores, and they're really, really small. So, I mean, you can breathe them in, they can be processed through your lungs, they can hang out in your gastrointestinal tract, and when they get in there, they don't they don't just come out, you know. Um, they can settle in your tissues, and so we have to have means of helping the body get rid of them, um, and the way that we get rid of them is through... Um, through the liver and through bile and having regular bowel movements. Um, a lot of times we have to use binders to help sequester that or things to help stimulate bile flow. Um, mm-hmm. I see a lot of times people think that, you know, a sauna, that they're sweating the mycotoxins out. And what ha- the sauna is very helpful for a lot of toxins, especially environmental um, toxins, the heavy metals. It can be very helpful. But with mycotoxins, you aren't really able to sweat those out very well. Um, so what sauna really helps with is shunting blood to our organs because when we're hot, our our body is really smart. And it's like, oh, well, your skin doesn't need blood supply and heat right now. So our blood goes more for focusing towards our organs and circulating things through our liver, which then is, is also helpful as we're trying to move mycotoxins out of our liver. Um, but they are really small and they kind of just get into everything and we have to mobilize them out of our system. Mm, okay. And is that through like urine and stool? Yeah. So urine is the best place that we can actually test for mycotoxins. Okay. Um, so urine and stool are the main ways that we remove them out of our body. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then talking about maybe other toxins that someone could sweat out in a sauna, um, because is that something that you would recommend in an EBV protocol, sauna use? So there are 
different heavy metals that respond well to sauna um, if if that's a component of the EBV, which sometimes it can be, um, then that's an extra benefit. And heavy metals can be tricky, so you want to make sure that you know mm-hmm. um, your body is ready to be mobilizing them because they will stay in your tissues, in your organs, in your bones. And then when they come out, we have to get them out of the body so they can't cause more damage. We want to mm-hmm. get them out as quickly as possible so they don't go back into the bloodstream and cause more problems. Mm-hmm. But sauna with Epstein-Barr virus can be really helpful because a lot of times we have a sluggish thyroid, we are dealing with chronic fatigue. Mm -hmm. Um, So having that core body temperature up, activating heat shock proteins, getting Mm -hmm. some mild um, sweating and increase in heart rate when we may not be feeling well enough to exercise. Now, there are times when it may not be a good idea for people that are dealing with POTS or whatnot from Mm -hmm. and that can happen with Epstein-Barr virus that can happen with mold sometimes so sometimes sauna isn't the first go-to thing but for a lot of people it can be a staple into um, their healing process Mm -hmm. definitely and are heavy metals something that are typically seen with Epstein-Barr well we see that Epstein-Barr virus cases when there's heavy metals involved that a lot of times it can be a more aggressive case um Mm -hmm. so i would say it's definitely something that we see related to reactivation and and but i wouldn't say it's always there um, but it can definitely be a factor and when they are there it does seem that I think due to the oxidative stress and also just the relationship between the metals and the virus and what the body is going through, that it can be a lot more severe symptoms sometimes when they are there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And that's, um, if you want to see if you have a heavy metal toxicity, that's a urine test as well, correct? There's a lot of different ways to test for heavy metals and depending on what metals you're testing for and um, so hair tests can also be really helpful Um, with urine. The thing is that a lot of urine, the metals won't show up in urine. So if you're going to do that, sometimes you need to provoke it. It also depends on if you're looking for at a recent exposure or a past exposure um, and a chronic, you know, chronic load or a more acute exposure. So depending on the metal, whether it's mercury, lead or aluminum, that's all going to be different on what test is most appropriate. Okay. That makes sense. So maybe like a hair tissue mineral analysis or, um, a urine test, just depending on what we think is present. Yeah, because some metals, like for example, mercury, it changes states really quickly. And so that's why it can cross the blood brain barrier very easily Mm -hmm. um, and get stuck in tissues. And a lot of times it might not show up in urine because it will stay in those tissues until it's provoked. So a urine test wouldn't be the most accurate way of testing mercury. Okay. And um, I'm asking so much about heavy metals because I feel like they're so often overlooked. But what are some ways that people can get heavy metal toxicity in today's world? Yeah, so um, obviously mercury fillings in in dental dental health, there are homes that still have lead paint. We, I mean, with children, you have to think about lead paint that's on like a playground set or something that's really old. Mm. Um, we want to make sure that you're getting quality supplements that have been tested for heavy metals. I mean, they they can be in kind of anywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. so we need to make sure that we're being mindful of it and drinking clear, clean water with water being filtered. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we could spend kind of all day talking about sources of heavy metals. That's um, so true. That, that kind of gives the picture for everyone, though. I mean, they're kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. So that's really good to know. Um, you had mentioned earlier when someone is using a sauna to um, rid their body of some heavy metal use in a safe manner. Um, what binders do you recommend? Um, what are some basics that someone could possibly get their hands on? 
Yeah, so it depends um, what, you know, what toxins we're dealing with because different mycotoxins, again, will respond to different things. Um, with binders, if there's really, we can't use binders if you're not having regular bowel movements. So if we're dealing with somebody that um, is only having one bowel movement per week or one every couple days, the first step is to just get bile flowing so we can increase um, things to do that like bitters mm -hmm. um, and really a lot of things that you can incorporate into your daily routine can help with mold and things like that um, so for example steamed kale can act in a way uh, to to bind up mold as well mm -hmm. um, so obviously it's not as aggressive or or whatnot for example, as a cholestyramine, which is traditionally what Dr. Shoemaker talks about conventionally for mold. Um, but if we have somebody that isn't having regular bowel movements and might not be ready for the load that comes with the mycotoxins being moved out of the body and we're just trying to get regular bowel movements, um, just increasing bitters, using kale, um, green tea is an natural huge antioxidant um, that also has a lot of polyphenols that can also help move out of the system and um, depending on the person's adrenal health and how they're doing with caffeine if they can do a little bit of caffeine that can also help get um, bowel movements moving and then from there we have a lot of different options on the supplement front when we are getting things moving um, you know, there's, it's really common for people to use GI detox or CellCore Biosciences has several different binders that have um, bioactive carbon molecules that can, that are the goal with that. And what we see is that if we're having regular bowel movements, those ones don't uh, slow down the bowel movements as much. Um, and then we have all the way to the, the conventional side where we have cholestyramine. Um, so there's a lot of different options and the person's, you know, their, I would say their level of vitality. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. kind of how much this has affected them, where they're at, uh, what their body is able to deal with in, in, regards to how much mycotoxins we're pulling out of the system, uh, their gastrointestinal health, their adrenal health, if they have other things going on like candida, um, parasites, mm -hmm. Epstein-Barr virus, then we might pick a different binder based on that as well so that we can also be addressing those things. Um, and biofilms in general, um, a lot of times we'll see uh, candida be a problem with mold as well because it kind of, I mean, candida and mold are, are different, but they're still from the fungal family. So they're creating to that overall fungal load, kind of like with the herpes family viruses where Epstein-Barr virus and HSV-1 and shingles are all different, but they're from that same family. So a lot of times um, we talk about the whole viral load. We say you have a heavy viral load or a heavy fungal load. So depending on looking at what your whole fungal load is, what kind of mycotoxins you have, which the Great Plains Laboratory mycotoxin urine test is very helpful because it will tell you the exact mycotoxins that you have showing up in urine. Um, that really helps us decide what binder is best as well. Yeah. I love how you broke it down because it's it's going to be so bio-individual. You know, everyone's protocol is going to look so different from the next um, because we do have different things going on within our body. So we can't expect, you know, one product protocol to look the same. Um, and I think at the root of all of the dysfunction that might be going on in someone's body for, for the candida and the mold and the parasites, which are all fairly common, I feel like, um, just living in today's world, at the root of it, um, the, like stress or something of that nature can kind of provoke these things to really trigger and exacerbate symptoms that one might be experiencing. Would you agree? Definitely. Um, stress is multifaceted and from, you know, from an energetic level and just to like how you're taking care of your body all mm -hmm. the way to 
biochemically altering not only what's going on with your adrenal glands and your in that realm, but your gastrointestinal health. Um, it actually can increase your lipopolysaccharide production from gram-negative bacteria. Uh, so I think we really underestimate how much stress plays a role in our in our health problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I remember showing up to a naturopathic appointment uh, a couple of years ago, and she was like, "How's your stress?" And I was like, "Um." which was fine, but I had like all of these things going on with me. <laughs> um, so I just feel like we are, it, it's hard for us to really tune in to our bodies, maybe from the get-go and really looking from the outside in, whereas a, a practitioner might be able to see a little bit more from, you know, a bigger scope as to what might be going on um, stress-wise and then tie it into all of the symptoms that one might be experiencing. Um Going back to mold toxicity, I remember hearing a little bit ago that, you know, some people might be more susceptible to mold toxicity than some others because of the gene mutation. Is that right? Yes. The HLA phenotypes can play a role in how well your body is able to detox mold. Okay. And how can someone find out if they have that gene mutation? Yeah, so that would be um, a blood test. Dr. Shoemaker has a panel for that, or I mean, it doesn't have to be his panel. He has kind of a, he has a long, long list of labs that can help really with um, tracking how your body is handling the mold and looking at how that has affected your system. Um, And he will have the HLA tested in that is just a blood draw. So you can also, you know, go to your doctor. Some of them are skilled with it and or will listen to you and will order it. And others, sometimes you need to find um, a doctor that is mold literate to order it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never heard of the Shoemaker test. So is that something that someone has to work with a practitioner to order or can they order it by themselves? Uh, yeah, so a Shoemaker test panel um, has several different, um, it's a blood test. So you will have to go to a doctor and Mm -hmm. some of them. So the tricky part that we get into is a lot of doctors won't see it as, um, necessary. So then it won't be comped under insurance or, or they might even not know quite how to code it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when that happens, then they might say like, well, you know, or maybe they don't want to order it. So some of the examples of what he checks are vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, uh, MSH, which is your melanocyte stimulating hormone, TGF beta one, uh, which is your transforming growth factor beta. So that really changes with mold a lot of times. Um, C4A, uh, which is an inflammatory marker that he has found to be significant when looking at the innate um, immune response in in respect to water damage buildings. Um, So these are all things that, you know, somebody that's trained in mold will find very valuable, whereas a practitioner I mean, we see in the conventional model that we just haven't really, well, the illness just isn't really, uh, what would you say, represented all that mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. they would not be able to pair it with like an ICD-10 code or whatnot that could be that could be deemed um, billable to insurance. Now, if you've had a mycotoxins test, urine test, um, and you, you know, you can see the mold there, you have a house report where mold is present, then, you know, then the ball gets rolling and and things can be listened to more. But depending on your insurance plan and your provider, uh, it kind of determines whether or not they will be ordering, ordering those labs. And those are just a few of the ones that he lists. Um, You can actually go to his website. Okay. Um, It's just survivingmold.com. And then he actually has like under a tab called diagnosis, where there's a full list of the labs that he likes to see. Um, and you can actually share that with your doctor so that if they aren't mold literate, they see like what you're wanting, what you're talking about. But a lot of times those can become out of pocket expenses. Okay. Noted. Perfect. I will go ahead and link that in the show notes as well for anyone who might be interested. Um, 
So just to cover all our bases, I want to make sure the listeners understand. So Epstein-Barr can represent itself as mononucleosis, and that's something that can stay dormant in the body until reactivated. Um, It's something like mold that can, you know, kind of go, come and go as it pleases. It doesn't exactly like the spores themselves and the mycotoxins, like they can actually leave the body and, and not stay dormant in the body. Is that correct? Can you repeat that again? I want to make sure that you're saying the spores can leave the body. Yeah. Like um, mold itself, like that doesn't always have to appear on a test, whether it's the the spores or mycotoxins, um, but something like Epstein-Barr can remain dormant in the body. Yes. So the Epstein-Barr virus remains dormant and then spores are not visible, um, but they can break up or, you know, when they come into contact with moisture or whatnot, we start to grow mold. This also produces mycotoxins, which are the toxic chemicals from the spores that are even smaller. Um, and that can be released into the air and, and present in our gastrointestinal tract and in our sinuses. Okay. So if it's not present in the GI tract, how could one find out if it's present in their sinuses. Yeah, so there are different, um, usually you would have a swab done. Um, there are some functional medicine doctors that, that specialize in that. Um, it can be, I would say that it's easier to test in the urine um, mm-hmm. just because usually, I mean, there might be companies that are doing self swabs. Um, I know that there were some coming out. I haven't used those. Um, so usually you want to talk with a functional medicine doctor if you want to get your sinuses checked. Okay, got it. Um, so something like Epstein-Barr that lies dormant in the body, um, and we had listed a couple things that you know we can start looking at, Um to kind of keep that at bay and make sure that it doesn't become reactivated. Are there any other things that you would recommend for someone to start managing the symptoms if it is reactivated? Yeah, so is what I see happen a lot of times, there's a lot of natural supplements out there that have amazing antiviral properties, um, Lamatium, lemon balm, um, I mean, the list is is very long there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The problem is that if if it is reactivated because of mold or stress in your life, you can end up spending a lot of money on those supplements. And from my experience, it they, it, they don't make you feel a ton better if you haven't dealt with whatever is going on in life that was kind of the kicker for causing it to reactivate. Um, and so then is what I see happen is people are taking this huge long list of supplements and doing all the things that are not feeling better. So um, things that can really make a difference. And I, you know, I ask, I have a private Epstein-Barr virus group and, and I do surveys and ask people like, what's the biggest thing that helps you feel better? And a large majority of them say that a anti-inflammatory diet really helps. And I would add to that an anti-inflammatory diet paired with very high levels of antioxidants. So when you think of like the Terry Walls diet where she's doing seven to nine vegetables a day, getting in the full rainbow of colors, because Epstein-Barr virus itself can cause oxidative stress and because all the things that we see that are usually leading to reactivation cause oxidative stress, having that daily intake of antioxidants that you're getting from your food can be one of the biggest changes and decreasing inflammation in the body just through your food can be one of the big changes. So the first thing I always start with is that because if we don't change that and we pile supplements on, we might not see a change in symptoms, um, mm-hmm. which ultimately when you're dealing with Epstein-Barr virus, um, you know, a lot of people that I work with have had to take time off of work, feel like they can't take care of their family, are missing out on really important memories and feeling miserable. So is what I always say is we have to try and get you feeling better the quickest. And the quickest way to do that 
is by changing daily things that are consistent patterns that are really going to affect long-term health because this virus is going to be around. It's, it's not going away, it's staying with you. Um, so I start with food before I start with supplements and that in the grand scheme of things is also just how naturopathic medicine works is we have a therapeutic order of interventions. And so we start with the least invasive first. And so food is something in your daily routine and, and then supplements would be a next level up. Um, supplements that also can be helpful are things that are going to help support your immune system. So sometimes that looks like adrenal support. Sometimes that looks like thyroid support. Those things can also be contributing to fatigue um, more so sometimes than the actual than the actual virus. Um, if you're having brain fog, then again, we have other forms of antioxidants like resveratrol, CoQ10, liposomal glutathione, uh, melatonin can be used as an antioxidant. And those are all can also be specific to mold or um, different systems that are more stressed. And then we have one of my favorite herbs, I will say, is astragalus because it can help support your natural killer cell count, which helps with viruses and it is adaptive to your adrenals and kind of tonic to them. So some adrenal supplements can kind of rev you up or make you feel kind of uh, buzzy or, or just not quite, quite right. Um, and sometimes when people are really sensitive with their adrenals, astragalus can be a really good choice. So we have all those different tools. And then there's higher interventions um, like pharmaceutical antivirals that at times if somebody has a real high viral load with shingles and herpes and the Epstein-Barr virus, where that's appropriate, we also have um, natural higher interventions like um, IV ozone and IV vitamin C therapy that can be beneficial too. So depending on what somebody's going through and how acute they're, you know, what if they've been living a really healthy life, but they had been exposed to EBV and their diet is already in check and they get in a car accident or have an, a very acute mold exposure. Some of those higher quick things um, that are going to be really aggressive might be might be more appropriate. Whereas somebody that is making dietary changes and has a lot of gastrointestinal health is going to need something more daily and long term in a supplement regimen. Um, mm -hmm. So we have tons and tons of options. Um, but when it comes to the immediate feeling better, it's really the foundations. And the biggest thing that people talk about is changes in their diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with anything. I mean, going from a standard American diet to an anti-inflammatory one is, I mean, you're, you're just inevitably going to feel a world of uh, difference, which is incredible. And I think that can help reverse a lot of symptoms that someone might be experiencing from the get-go. But like you said, someone who might already be living. Um, and I feel like that was me. I was, you know, living a really healthy lifestyle or so I thought, and I was eating the right foods. I still have to read, um, Dr. Terry Wall's, um, book, the Wall's protocol. I'm going to link that too, because I, um, I find it her and her protocols to be really fascinating, but I still have that book in my Amazon cart. So <laughs> I'm going to put that in the show notes, but there. And they're, they're just the foundations, just addressing diet. And along with that, stress too. Stress, like you said, is multifaceted, whether that's emotional, physical, or, you know, chemical stressors exist too. And, you know, everything we're talking about lies under that category. Um, so I think those are fabulous places to start. And everyone's protocol is going to look so different just depending on the, um, the level of your health and where it lies and the state that your body is in. Um, so I, I highly recommend anyone who might be experiencing symptoms of Epstein-Barr and a lot that you listed, like I said, a lot of people should be able to relate to the inexplainable brain fog and fatigue being a huge one. Um, are there any other symptoms that you might add to that list? Um. I have seen 
people also have SIBO a lot. So we will see um, some people having a lot of digestive symptoms with Epstein-Barr virus. Um, it is linked to, I should say it's correlated to, so we do see people that have irritable bowel disease mm -hmm. showing up with more Epstein-Barr virus and that kind of goes across the board for all autoimmune conditions. There was a article published that linked it to seven of the most common um, autoimmune conditions. And my question is, did the Epstein-Barr virus cause that autoimmune condition or were we already headed on a path towards that and the Epstein-Barr virus reactivated due to stress, um, standard American diet, lifestyle, other infections, other exposures, and then that reactivated and that was just fuel to the fire that, that caused mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. because we see it linked to all these different autoimmune conditions and chronic illnesses and even cancers, then we have, I mean, lots of symptoms. Like I always, in my group, um, people are always like, I have this happen, I, or I have muscle twitching, or I have this or that. And whether that is specifically from that virus or not sometimes is difficult to say because a lot, a lot of times we have so many other things going on in the body and we always want to find just this one thing that if we focus on that one thing, we're going to feel all better. Mm -hmm. And in the grand scheme of things, that's just not usually how the body works. Um, but uh, headaches, um, the fatigue, sometimes it, we have gastrointestinal health issues. Sometimes that's constipation, sometimes that's diarrhea, depending on what is happening with that system. Um, we see a lot of thyroid problems with Epstein-Barr virus and then everything that stems with, um, with thyroid problems. So we can see heart palpitations or, um, you know, being cold all the time, running a low body temperature kind of. So the symptoms, can really expand and whether or not they're directly from the virus or they're from the virus from what the virus has helped create in the body can be it can be difficult um, to to say so to speak mm -hmm. yeah what a wide range of symptoms um, is there anything else that you wanted to add relating to Anything we discussed on the show so far, I know we've covered so much on Epstein-Barr and heavy metals and mold and how it can all really be connected. Yeah, um, I would say, I know that we talked about mold and we've linked some resources and one resource that we should not forget that has been just instrumental um, for a lot of people healing from mold is Dr. Jill Chris's book, Break the Mold. Okay. Um, so she has done just a really good job of helping people understand exactly how the spores and the mycotoxins interact and settle into the body and then also practical things and supplements um, that, you know, that are foundational to that healing process. Um, so we should probably include that in the show notes yeah, because definitely. it is a staple of mine. Awesome. Perfect. Um so it is the Human Experience Podcast, Dr. Casey, and I like to ask every special guest who comes on the show, what makes you human? Oh, that's such a great question. <laughs> um, and like really fun. So just good yeah. job on that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would say what makes me human is just kind of when you think about life and you think about expectations or assumptions um, and and then you find out what something really is and it's it's not that I find more and more that the more I look at myself and understand myself that there's very paradoxical features where where it's like well I'm supposed to be this but really but really I'm this um, and I think that sums up so much of the human experience is taking out the judgments and assumptions and expectations that we have of ourselves and others mm -hmm. and not placing any labels on them or whatnot and just accepting accepting where we're at or or associating things differently so i guess what makes me human is is learning about that more and watching how that unfolds um, and continually growing um, mm -hmm. we're never done learning yeah. um, never done learning never done growing no matter no matter what degree we hold or what career we're a part of 
a perfect example is my own health. Uh, we didn't really get to touch on it, but after I graduated from naturopathic medical school was when I was exposed to mold and had the biggest Epstein-Barr virus reactivation I've ever had. Right. And I should have, I thought I knew how to take care of it. I thought I would just do some, some ozone, maybe some IV vitamin C and I'd be right back at work. And that is not what happened. Um, so I'm human because I'm learning and it's always a humbling experience. Mm, I love that so much. That was so well said and definitely something I needed today. We can all use like these little reminders. So thank you for that, Dr. Casey. Um, I wanted to leave the listeners with, um, where they could find you. Oh, great. Um, my website is www.drkeseyholland.com. You can also find me on Instagram. I'm, I'm on there quite a bit, uh, <laughs> Dr. Casey Holland. Um, and then I also have like a private Facebook group on, it's called, I believe it's Dr. Casey's EBV recovery group or support group. And it's linked oh. on my Instagram and my website. Okay. Um, and it's great just if you want to be able to talk about EBV and you've been told it's all in your head, it's so nice to hear other people's stories and be like, wow, this is not, you know, how I'm feeling isn't uncommon. That doesn't mean that it's normal or that your experience hasn't been very difficult and not minimizing that at all. But the community is there to help, to just kind of help open up doors for talking about what you've been going through. Yeah, I love that so much um, because when you're experiencing symptoms, like I'm sure you may have felt early on, um, I myself included, what just felt so invalidated by maybe some doctors, maybe some friends, family, just because maybe they hadn't experienced those things and it wasn't like a, oh, same, like I, I experienced that too, but no one around me I felt like was really truly um, understood what I was going through. And I felt like a hypochondriac and was told it was all in my head and that I was perfectly healthy and perfectly normal and to just maybe work out a little bit more, um, maybe exclude a couple things from my diet, but it's just so much more than that. And I know the importance of community specifically relating to the new system too um, and how vital that is to have um, at all times. So that's awesome. I will definitely link that in the show notes. And that is all we have today, guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. You know where to find Dr. Casey Holland and until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys, to another episode of the Human Experience Podcast. I do always appreciate your love via Instagram DMs and now any ratings or reviews that you have to give my podcast. I would love to hear your feedback. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and of course, feel free to share with friends and family so that others can hear my voice too. Until next time.